I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. The world's forests are essential to maintaining life on Earth. The Amazon rainforest is home to millions of plants and animal species found nowhere else. Forests make up a third of all land on the planet, and they're one of our major defenses against a warming world, with 45% of the carbon stored inland existing in forests. Today, our forests are struggling to adapt to human activity and a rapidly changing climate. Deforestation and fires continue to ravage habitats like the Amazon. Here in the States, we're inundated with headlines and photos of destructive wildfires in the West each year. To protect these valuable ecosystems and carbon sinks, we'll need to radically change the way we restore, conserve, and expand these landscapes. And that's exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Vibrant Planet CEO and co-founder Allison Wolf, is doing. Our mission at Vibrant Planet is to accelerate forest and wildland resilience and community resilience in the face of wildfire at first, but we'll also be taking on flooding and other climate-driven risks. Allison and the Vibrant Planet team are modernizing forest conservation and restoration with a product called Land Tender, a digital platform that leverages data to help forest services, municipalities, and tribal lands better manage their conservation and restoration efforts. Centuries of logging and poor land management have led to the current mess we're in with forest fires. The combination of clear-cutting old growth and policies designed to prevent fires at all costs have created denser forests filled with small flammable trees. That unnatural forest density coupled with a hotter, drier climate has turned much of the forests on the West Coast into powder kegs ready to ignite. There's about 240 million acres across the Western states that have been identified by some of the U.S. Forest Service labs as high severity or at risk of high severity fire. In my lifetime alone, California has lost about 7% of our tree cover. An average of 7 million acres have burned in the U.S. each year over the past decade. And all those acres mean more carbon in the atmosphere and more drought as the water cycle is disrupted. The forests in in the fire-prone lands, some of them, like on the coast of California, store more than the Amazon. There's a lot of reason to keep them intact. And then a lot of people don't realize, but 70% of water worldwide originates in forests. So trees are playing this incredible role in filtering water, um, evapotranspiration with the loss of forests. When we have really severe fire, the ground turns to powder, and we have trillions of dollars every year now in dredging reservoirs and trying to rapidly revegetate because landslides keep happening. Clearing brush, cutting down smaller trees, and other interventions are essential. But the work needed to do this has been slow and very low-tech, with stakeholders using pens and paper, physical maps, and in-person meetings to create forest restoration plans that could take a decade or more to come to fruition. That's where Vibrant Planet's first product, Land Tender, comes in. Using sophisticated LiDAR technology, Vibrant Planets creates complex 3D models of the forest from floor to canopy. Allison describes Land Tender as the operating system for forest restoration. 
The three-dimensional view is very, very important to understand forest function. There's a lot of habitat underneath the canopy, for example. To understand evapotranspiration and even carbon sequestration, we have to understand how a tree looks in 3D. So that that high-resolution three-dimensional view is very, very important, and we're mapping trees where we have LIDAR at one meter resolution, which is very, very fine scale. Detailed maps of the landscape can be turned into valuable digital assets that can help stakeholders break down the economic costs and benefits behind a big project. Surrounding infrastructure, carbon sequestration, water, and biodiversity are broken down by their value. Allison calls this their restorative return on investment. And so that's really the foundation of the system is mapping and normalizing and also economically normalizing these these data sets so that we can basically scenario plan like crazy and understand what the most impactful, what we call restorative return on investment could be. By digitizing forest conservation and restoration, Land Tender makes it easy for municipal fire districts, conservation districts, nonprofits, and NGOs to coordinate and plan with each other. Different interventions, like removing vegetation and prescribed burns, can be mapped out over time using machine learning and AI to adjust treatments accordingly. And then also just helping people share so different stakeholders can create plans, share them with each other, compare and weigh trade-offs of different directions, and uh, and then come to a decision in these kinds of consensus-driven processes. None of that is possible today. So it's very much transforming an old world industry. To protect the world's forests, we need a system that can outpace the millions of acres lost in fires each year. Vibrant Planet is rolling out in California and Southern Oregon with a large presence in California's Tahoe Basin. They've already gathered an impressive set of customers, including the California Tahoe Conservancy and the U.S. Forest Service. They plan to expand to more states, but Allison hopes their tech could help efforts around the globe as the window for action shrinks. I worry about places like California that within the next couple of decades, our chief scientists and other scientists in the in the space uh, are concerned that Colorado won't ma- won't have much forest left just in the next decade or two. So it's happening exponentially. It's happening very fast. And so if, without a system that accelerates restoration, we have a lot at stake. I spoke with Allison about merging nature-based climate solutions with cutting-edge technology, developing their first product, Land Tender, and her long career pushing big tech companies to make positive choices for people and the planet. We started with her childhood in Boulder, Colorado, where she found solace in nature at a young age. Going back to the beginning, which is where we always start on what it takes, you grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and were raised by a single mom who worked at a bank and then a tech startup. Your dad was a builder who moved to the Virgin Islands after your parents divorced when you were six. Tell me about your parents and how they shaped you. Yeah. um, So I was mostly with my mom in Boulder, like you said. And I think from her, I learned a lot about love and compassion and working hard. My mom worked so hard to support us. Um, And from my dad, I learned um, a lot about just living with passion and, you know, joys in life and sort of a bohemian lifestyle, living on a sailboat, catching our dinner, bathing in the whatever next rain squall came was a really cool experience um, in sailing and, you know, learning to race a sailboat 
scuba dive, all of those kinds of things was was really incredible. Um, and Colorado also had major outdoor life. My my family's always been kind of into camping, and uh, my mom would throw my brother and I in the car on weekends, and we'd drive up in the mountains and cook breakfast out on a campfire. Sometimes, if we didn't have time to go camping for the weekend, we would just go at least have breakfast up there. So, um, yeah. And I know you self-identified as a shy but adventurous kid and have said that you found a lot of solace in nature. Is there a specific place that you remember where you found that solace? Yeah. Um, for those of you who know Boulder, there's an area called Boulder Canyon, um, Canyon Drive. And especially once I could drive a car, I would go up that canyon and just pull over on the side of the road back when when I was a kid, there weren't so many people there. And I would often just go sit on a rock in the middle of the river. And I think I was meditating before really knowing what meditation was back then, but I've got a thing for rivers. Um, I've always just found that that act of sitting in a river with the water rushing around me sort of cleansed out anxiety and stress and troubles and uh, so I always kind of found solace in that. And then and then recreating, I've always, you know, done every outdoor sport you can think of. And that keeps me sane and healthy. And it's definitely my passion. In 1988, you went to University of Southern California or USC and double majored in sociology and business because you were trying to balance your desire to do good in the world, but also just the necessity of making money. Why USC and what was your experience like there? Yeah, so USC was kind of funny. I um, it was either going to CU Boulder or USC, and I got a academic scholarship to USC that made it cheaper. And I, uh, growing up with my single mom, we did not have money, and so I knew college was on me, and I had to do it in four years, and I needed to go the cheapest route possible. Um, and there was a little bit of me that was ready for an adventure to get out of Boulder. Boulder at the time was a small town and I was kind of ready to, you know, spread my wings a bit. So, uh, yeah, so went out to USC and, um, the sociology major was, was fascinating. Um, I was at USC during the Rodney King riots and with, as a sociology major, we had to work in the school system. So I volunteered at the schools. I think it was two or three days a week, um, in the elementary school near USC and saw firsthand what inequity looks like um, with, you know, 50, 60 kids to a class. Half of them spoke Spanish, dilapidated, moldy buildings. Kids didn't have paper and pencils if someone didn't donate the the supplies. And I knew 15 minutes away, the kids in Beverly Hills had computers even back then. So I really saw what inequity looked like. And um, that very much drove me for, it still drives me. Um, through the rest of my career. And then after graduating from USC in 92, you spent the next three decades working with big tech companies, starting at Netflix as an early marketing manager, and then later with eBay, Google, Facebook, helping drive their sustainability efforts. But before all of that, you kicked off your career at a woman's sportswear brand called Rika. Tell me about Rika. Yep. Yeah. So this is going to be dating me, but when I was at USC, I, I worked full-time. And one of my jobs, I had several jobs, one of my jobs was teaching aerobics. And um, I uh, 
I was really taken with Rika. Rika and Patagonia were the only companies in the world at the time that gave a portion of profits to charity. Um, Patagonia, of course, started 1% for the planet, and I loved that. And Rika um, started a program where they were giving 1% to women's shelters for, for battered women and children. And I think coming from a single mom context, we didn't have abuse in our family, but something resonated me in that co- with me in that cause. And so I wrote to Sherry Poe, the CEO, and said, hey, will you sponsor our aerobics instructors? This is when it was like us and Reebok were the two companies competing for that space. And so she, she said yes. And so we got a sponsorship. And then I just kind of followed the company. When I got out of college, I wrote Sherry a letter again and said, hey, I'm graduating later this year, and I would really like to work for your company. And um, she, a couple of months later, um, let me know that there was a marketing manager position open. And so I went for that position and and got it and moved across the country to Boston and um, and led marketing um, right out of cool, right out of school, um, only for a couple of months and then ended up running international sales and marketing um, a couple of months later, as green as green can be. Um, but pulled it off and learned a ton. <laughs> mm. And then what brought you from Rika to Netflix? Um, so later I um I stayed in the international sales and distribution world for a couple of more more years at a company called Mossimo. And then was later at a little design firm called Man Bites Dog in San Francisco. Uh, went back back west, and one of my clients there um, basically said, uh, "You know, we're late to the gold rush. This is in, uh, you know, the 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 first dot com boom." And um, and you know, the, basically said, "There's a there's a company called Netflix." It's a DVD rental company. It's a little weird, but it's really interesting. I think you should jump in with me as my director of marketing. And uh, he was going in as the VP of marketing. And so I said yes and jumped in. And then um, Omer, who was the person that brought me in, went to the next.com. At that time, people were kind of jumping around and Netflix wasn't for him. And he decided to go to another.com, try to take me with him again four or five months later. And I said, you know, I really love films and I really like Reed Hastings. Reed had just stepped in as CEO and, uh, I decided to stay and, and with that ended up running marketing at Netflix and really got the opportunity to to create the brand. So oversaw the development of the logo, the red envelope, spent many hours in the post office trying to make the red envelope go faster through the postal system back when we had one DVD, you know, shipping center. Um, and uh, yeah, and then basically helped craft the the narrative around streaming. And how would that happen? How would, you know, millions of people eventually be watching, fast-forwarding, rewinding movies back when we didn't have fiber optic cable yet. So it was sort of my first experience selling air, what felt like air, selling a dream, even though Reed knew exactly when it was going to happen, having come from the fiber optic cable space. So um, yeah, it was, a, it was a wild ride and a really great experience. And, and again, I learned a ton, especially from Reed's leadership that I, I still try to emulate today. So you got us through the pandemic is what I'm hearing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. Didn't didn't know I was doing that then, but yes. Yeah. And then later basically went into the consulting world. The first four years 
at an entity called SY Partners, incredible firm that works on vision, strategy, and culture change. So how do you help, you know, 200,000 people worldwide and a large company see their role in where a company is headed? Yeah, so so worked for SY Partners, which is a, a firm that that helps CEOs and leadership teams establish a new vision. So times of change, a new CEO comes in, a company is failing, it needs a turnaround, whatever the circumstances, and um, and then helps people sort of like the, the the man on the moon, you know, how do you help every employee in a company, no matter what position they're in, see their role in a new direction and be jazzed about it. So um, really learned the art of, you know, setting vision collaboratively, um, setting strategy collaboratively, and then and then moving people through sometimes art, um, you know, rebranding, narrative, um, analyst briefings, um, presentations, brand. I mean, everything. Um, how how customers experience a brand, and um, basically over the course of being there, got very very passionate about climate change, and got to the point where I couldn't not work on it and was having a hard time working with companies that weren't taking it seriously, it and sustainability. Got very passionate about closed-loop manufacturing, cradle-to-cradle ideas from working. We did some pro bono work with Bill McDonough, for example. And I just got to the point where I couldn't not work on those things. And so left um, SY Partners very much with the partner's blessing and uh, started my own my own entity, which was also called Vibrant Planet, actually in 2004. And uh, it was just my own little LLC. And I had a sort of stable of contractors, writers and designers and and web developers and, and things like that. And basically did the same thing, but working with CEOs and leadership teams on the kind of legacy they wanted to leave in the world and how they could eventually sort of became a specialist in helping some of the big Silicon Valley platforms that you named eBay, Google, and Facebook. How do we put our thumb on the scale towards good? How do we ensure that these platforms are forces for for good in the world? And just started experimenting. It was very early in sort of the corporate social responsibility, global citizenship days, and um, just sort of evolved in that space for for many, many years, about 20 years, and helped all three companies with their foundational sustainability strategies, those narratives, um, coalition building for, you know, efficient data center design and renewable energy purchasing going into coal-based states and saying, we'll bring these many jobs, this much philanthropy, um, but we're going to green your grid um, as we come into Tennessee or Kentucky, um, had the huge opportunity to work with Bill Weil, who was who is legendary in Silicon Valley, having been green energy czar at Google and then head of sustainability at Facebook, and um, learned a ton from him and was so delighted to support him in uh, in really just trying to figure out how do we how do we make these companies um, you know the exemplary companies on how to do sustainability inside and out, and uh, and then the coalition building was really powerful. Also helped with data for good launches, um, putting some of that to work now actually for ourselves, um, especially with the Facebook data for good launch, and a lot of experimentation with movement building um, around the Paris Climate Talks uh, while I was at Facebook. Um, women's empowerment. We did some. I did a health product strategy. Um, with the leadership team, and we launched uh, Data for Good around a pandemic during Zika um, in preparation for what we've been dealing with the last few years. How do you get reliable, trustworthy information to people about a pandemic? Um, so it was a very interesting time and um, exciting to to have worked on 
on all of those big platforms, had some big wins and some big losses and hopefully move the ball forward a little bit. I am sure you have. Um, and then tell me about finding Project Drawdown and and being a initiating force for that. Yeah. So I was I'd known Paul Hawken a little bit. We had overlapping circles. Paul Hawken, for those that don't know, in my mind is one of the most profound sustainability and um climate solutions brains we have on the planet. He's a prolific writer. He's written, gosh, I think eight or nine New York Times bestsellers at this point in his life. So I got reconnected with him um, around his desire to launch both a book and an organization called Drawdown. And Drawdown was basically an attempt to reset the goal on climate solutions. So moving it away from sort of an esoteric how many degrees do we want to get to or what what level, you know, the 1.5, uh, getting away from something esoteric and less meaningful and directive to a goal that is driving action. Um, so drawdown as a concept is the point at which carbon emissions peak and begin to go down um, because of our actions. And so what the drawdown team did is for three years, they had several um, several scientists and, and other analysts go out in the world and basically map and collect data on the top 100 climate solutions that could contribute to drawdown. Um, and they both they were both emissions related, but also um, from a from an energy perspective, but also you know carbon removal perspectives. And so then they rank ordered them. And what was powerful for me in learning about drawdowns, so I, I was basically brought in to help launch the book. So I helped with the PR and social media around the book launch, and it went really well. I think the public was very ready for the for the book, so we just needed to get the word out. Uh, but we hit. Uh, number six in the New York Times bestseller list within nine days. It was very fast. And um, I think the book has been published in 35 languages worldwide and widely, widely distributed at this point. And then a whole organization was launched around it to bring communities together to innovate on the 100 solutions and help each other accelerate them. Um, so in learning about Drawdown and also just having this affinity for for nature, um, the 16 nature-based solutions in Drawdown, in combination, blow away anything we can do with energy uh, energy use. Now, of course, at this point, we have to do everything. But it really hit me how powerful nature-based solutions are. And so I had become really passionate about that and really decided I wanted to spend the next iteration of my career in the nature-based solutions space. So I was starting to do a little bit of regenerative ag exploration and, and, um, and then working with Paul. And, uh, and then I was hired by a, a Silicon Valley expat, a tech, tech founder, who wanted to build sort of an innovation center in the Lake Tahoe area. We don't have a Rocky Mountain Institute or a, or a uh, Aspen Institute type center uh, in, up, in, up in Lake Tahoe. So that was the idea. And so I went out on a listening tour to start talking to people about what mattered in the community, what people were concerned about. And uh, and what um, could have global impact, and very much climate focused and sustainability focused. And during that time, um, all anyone would talk about was fire. And so here I was learning from Paul and Drawdown about nature based solutions, and 
what I was hearing from this community, and as I talked to more and more scientists worldwide about the problem, realized that we're going to we're going to lose our opportunity for nature based solutions, and they're the most ready now. They are. It, it, it really is just the way we've managed aglands and forests that has caused the problem. So if it's a problem we've caused, we can we can restore those systems' ability to to do what they've done for thousands of years. So I started to see that opportunity then in, in working with Paul on Drawdown. Mm. And then how did that inclination become the seed of the idea that became Vibrant Planet? Yeah, so it became one of those moments where I couldn't not start something focused on fire. So uh, so as I was working with Paul on Drawdown, and then as I'm also working with this tech founder um, to figure out what we might do in Tahoe, and hearing how ecosystems are literally exploding um, and what happens, um, what's at stake and how catastrophic that is. I even realized even regenerative ag is going to fail if we lose forests up the hill from those regenerative ag systems um, because of water impacts and smoke impacts for workers and, um, you know, the and then the carbon sequestration that that we rely on for forests to have stable ecosystems for growing food, it, the writing was very clear on the wall for me. Um, and so it became, it became something again, that I could not do. Um, as I learned, as I dug deeper into what do we do about this, started to learn about this slow planning process that I talked about at the beginning and uh, just how broken the collaborative planning process is, the lack of high resolution data, um, the lack of consistency in data. It's very much in silos, sometimes on hard drives and shoeboxes at universities. Um, and the the lack of compute, there's no ability to run scenarios and project them into the future with fire probabilities and climate po- probabilities. There, there just was not that skill set being applied in this space. So I had many people in my listening journey say, you need to go get the best Silicon Valley talent you can get your hands on because that's what we need to solve this problem, to actually engineer the high-resolution data and leverage compute and AI and machine learning in a way that is useful. Um, Get them to stop selling ads on these platforms and get them to focus on that problem. So that's that's essentially, that sort of became a, a sort of rallying cry for me and decided to set out and go do that. But of course, that technology expertise has to be grounded in the customer and in the problem so that you can't just invent something that's looking for a customer, right? You have to ground the technology and the design of the technology in what customers need and want and in the wood grain of how they work. Um, So our team, you know, was born from that idea that, and it it really is a combination of some of the best scientists in the world on fire-prone forests, forest managers, land managers that came out of Forest Service, BLM, and the private landowner sector, um, remote sensing experts, analysts on hydrology and biodiversity, and then rock star engineers and and machine learning AI type folks and product managers. 
Coming up, Allison finds her co-founders, and they set their sights on building out Vibrant Planet and the Land Tender platform. But first, What It Takes is brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to accelerate the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a low-carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Flare, who are reducing homeowners' heating and cooling expenses and emissions. Like Ample, who are solving how fleets get electric energy in cities. And like Palmetto, who have built a clean energy marketplace. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking development opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. So you took that advice and did exactly that and found four co-founders. So there's five of you, including yourself. Who are the other four and how did you meet them? Yeah, so the first co-founder was Scott Conway. He was one of the people I met on my listening tour. He was at the U.S. Forest Service Remote Sensing Lab in Region 5, which is California and Pacific Islands, which is really one of the most innovative centers on remote sensing in the Forest Service. And he was hacking at this data problem, trying to turn LiDAR into three-dimensional data and packaging it in decision support systems that people could use on tablets in field as they're discussing different types and intensities of treatments. Um, But he was, you know, hamstrung by, again, lack of compute. Um, It was just him trying to solve this massive problem. The Forest Service at the time was not allowed to use the cloud And they had servers that they were in the process of moving to Salt Lake City. So there was like a delay. I mean, it was was really impossible. So he was one of the very key influencers for me seeing the problem and also seeing the solution to the problem. Um, Once he and I started to team up and conceive of of the company and and the first product, I reached out immediately to Neil Hunt who I knew from Netflix. We had stayed in touch off and on all these years. We were both kind of outdoor people. And um, I knew he was a forest owner uh, in the Sierra Nevada and in a, in a very high, um, high fire danger area. And so I immediately reached out to Neil, kind of schooled him on the problem, the planning problem and where it's broken and asked if he would fund us to try to create something. Um, so he said yes, and and Neil Neil and his wife um, basically underwrote the development of our minimum viable product, and he also joined the board. So we set up a public benefit corp at that point, and he joined the board along with Ty Kim, who came out of he was the CFO for our mid our network. Um, so he was really knowledgeable on finance. We were setting up a hybrid structure. Um, and Omidyar was one of the first funders that set up a hybrid structure um, with a nonprofit arm and a for-profit arm. And then they also had a C4 for lobbying. I still have. Um, and so we were we were spinning the public benefit corp out of a nonprofit that I had set up two years prior to do a lot of this listening kind of tour work and identifying the gaps in the space that needed to be filled. And so we decided to keep the nonprofit in place as a data commons where the the valuable data that we would 
later build in the Public Benefit Corp could be housed and made available uh, to the scientific community. Um, and also just gathering data and making it more accessible for the for the science world generally. Um, and then also public education experiences. So how do you turn data into information to educate policymakers and the public? Because there's a lot to do in public creating public will and, and political change around this topic. So the nonprofit um, ended up taking that on. And we've got an amazing new leader named Brent Davies who came in from Ecotrust Forest Management to run that. And then I resigned from the nonprofit. We set up the Public Benefit Corp. Neil and Ty Kim joined the board. Um, Scott and I became employees. And um, and then Maria Tran, uh, who I had worked with at, at Facebook, um, also joined. Uh, she had been sort of advising some of the listening tour work that I was doing and starting to conceive of a product strategy with me as, as just an advisor. Maria is an absolute force. She's a product manager, um, very focused on data analytics products. And she built the internal chatter analysis engine at Facebook to really understand the zeitgeist of the world. And I met her as we were doing movement building during the Paris climate talks around climate change. Um, She and I set up a structure, uh, basically a, a nomenclature structure in, uh, I think, 15 languages worldwide to basically analyze what is the conversation happening in key countries across the world on climate change. Um, so really, and then really understanding from a segmentation perspective where we could maybe move folks that are denying climate change to to act or at least to not fight action. So, um, so Maria agreed to help us with the initial product strategy for what became Land Tender, our uh, first flagship product. So she was. She became a co-founder, and then um, she reached out to me and said, "Hey, I just talked to my friend Guy Bays, who was the engineer that developed the internal chatter analysis engine at Facebook, and his house had just about burned down up in Talent, Oregon, right outside of Ashland, in the big fires in 2020, and he was." digging his head in and and called Maria and said, what the hell with this fire problem? Like, what do we do about this? This is ridiculous. Who's doing something? And Maria said, you need to talk to my friend, Allison. Um, And so Guy and I met and totally hit it off. He's amazing. And he said, I want to join your company and I'm going to be your CTO. And um, Guy had built a lot of the Lyft engineering team and and core, core structure for Lyft after he left Facebook. Um, and had done some stuff also in science at Lawrence Livermore Labs. So that's how the team came together. It's an amazing founding team. And so once you did come together, what did you do first? You mentioned uh, Tender, the the MVP. But yeah, what did you do first once the five of you said, all right, we're doing this? Let's do this. Yes. And I forgot to mention Neil dropped in also as the chief product officer um, over time. Couldn't help himself. <laughs> so he came in to lead product. Um, so yeah, so we we had a very clear vision. So the work that I had done in the nonprofit to map the space, identify issues, part of the work that I did was um, sitting side saddle with uh, forest management planning teams. So folks that were coming together in this collaborative planning process that was paper-based and very difficult to understand the workflows that they're in and um, try to design a system, like just asking the question along the along the way, 
where can we insert improved data and technology to make the conflict easier um, or remove it altogether and, and accelerate the consensus-driven process? In the nonprofit, I had been sitting side saddle, really thinking as a product manager with Maria at my side as, as a really advanced product manager it with you know with data driven platforms um, and a user experience designer, one of the best in the business, um, Kevin Farnham, and uh, and so we sat side saddle in these in these workflows, just listening and understanding how decisions were being made, how data was being gathered, and how it was being packaged into a scenario. Uh, asking the question along the way, how can we insert improved data, improved technology to improve the process and speed it up? And uh, it got very clear. So we we basically launched the Public Benefit Corp with a very clear product plan and even initial designs. And the next step was just building it. Um, so building out the MVP. So we brought in an incredible group called Presence, which is a product development firm. Um, they, they're a consulting firm that, that does product development in Silicon Valley and um, brought them in to build the MVP for us under Guy's leadership and Maria's. And we were able to very quickly demonstrate what this system could do in the planning process. And so that helped us start to generate a customer base. So within a year, um, we had our first customer and uh, and launched the platform around the Tahoe Basin uh, announcement um, with the California Tahoe Conservancy, the Tahoe RCD, and a bunch of the fire districts in the Lake Tahoe Basin. And so we did that announcement. And then that that landscape has now snowballed from 300,000 acres to 1.5 million acres. Um, that's now also wrapping the whole Placer County area, the entire Tahoe National Forest, which is a separate forest from the Tahoe Basin Forest. Um, and then we've got PG&E. Uh, working with us in that landscape and hopefully many more landscapes. As a partner, they extended the the um, kind of ownership boundaries to include their land and their infrastructure. And uh, and then Truckee Fire District and, and several other groups that have come together now to plan across three watersheds, three forests, two utilities, um, all working together and fire districts. And they're all using the the main product or the core product, Land Tender, which you've called the operating system for forest restoration. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. We're about to deploy the system in Trinity County, which is about 2.5 million acres. And then Southern Oregon after that um, in the Ashland area. Which, so that's kind of a homecoming for Guy Bays, our CTO, where his house almost burned down, where we're deploying next. And then tons of interest across the Western U.S., Last year in 2022, you announced what sounded like a massive seed round. It was a $17 million announcement uh, led by Ecosystem Integrity Fund, uh, but that was actually the culmination of a couple of years of capital that came in along the way. Tell me about the seed round and who participated beyond Ecosystem Integrity Fund and what was it like fundraising? Yeah, so we had sort of a rolling set of funding. We started with around that the Grantham Foundation funded first. So we did a $5 million round that they led. They have a for-profit investing arm of the foundation. Grantham Foundation is one of the biggest climate solutions funders in the world. Incredible org. And uh, and then Earthshot came in 
and um, Data Tech Fund and um, several other really cool small investors. Chris Cox, who is the chief product officer at Meta, also came in. I had done some work with Chris and he's funding Climate Solutions and and got behind us. So we did sort of a a, a, a set of convertible notes early on to continue to underwrite the the development of the minimum viable product and then evolve it into a real, you know, beta version of the system that that would operate in the world. And then we um, did a seed round where we converted all the debt just this last May. And that's the round that Ecosystem Integrity Fund led. And some of our other investors like Earthshot and Data Tech Fund and others came back in to that round. Um, along with new investors like Valia Ventures. So our company is really challenging to raise funding around. I have to talk to 50 investors to find one that gets it. So a lot of our sales is government sales, and that scares the crap out of funders. Um, At the local level, we sell to conservation districts. We sell to municipal fire districts. We sell to local forests through nonprofit partners um, and NGOs. And, and then we're, we've been working on some federal um, contracting capabilities as well. So what's been interesting is finding funders that see once you actually land government business, how big and how sticky that business can be. And it's also from a theory of change perspective if we can work nationally with the U.S. Forest Service, for example, or Department of Interior, we can basically become that data platform um, that really understands how our landscape's trending. Are they trending towards resilience or away from resilience? Because if we are actively helping to manage or supporting the natural resource managers in managing land effectively and monitoring those decisions and monitoring current conditions, we become the dominant data platform to understand what's happening on landscapes at any given time. So the funders that see that and the the federal especially path to that end um, get very, very excited. So EIF was very special in that Jamie Everett, one of the partners, is a forester. And so when he saw land tenure, he said, I've been looking for this for 15 years. And he really, really sees it. Um, we have had success with climate tech funders like Earthshot has been an incredible partner to us and and Chris Cox and uh, and others, Valia Ventures. Um, but it's it's been challenging to to find the handful that really see it. So I think when, once we find them, it's a very close knit family and and we feel incredibly supported and we get a lot of a lot of help with introductions and product strategy thinking and those kinds of things. Excellent. It's a good, really good group of investors. A topic that's been in the news recently and has had some criticism over the years are carbon offsets and credits. Um, how is Vibrant Planet thinking about that scrutiny as an upcoming part of your business is uh, providing data around those credits? Yeah, it is definitely on the product roadmap and next in line. So we our our philosophy is um, we really have to focus on this restoration problem or protection. And it depends on the context on what the right action is for land. So in the Amazon, we just need to leave it alone. Um, if we leave the Amazon alone, it flourishes and it stores tons and tons of carbon, provides this water service that becomes worldwide weather, et cetera. 
Um, and, and so the action there is keep farmers from cutting down the forest, pay them to do that. So trying to figure that out is very, very difficult, very political. In Western forests and in other Mediterranean climate types in Australia and Europe, the history is that we we played out the Lorax. We cut everything. Um, in the United States and the West, for example, there's only about 4% old growth, somewhere between 4 and 7 some say 7%. But regardless, we, we cut everything to build towns and railroads and mines. And uh, I mean, really, the American economy was built on the back of trees. And in doing so, we completely disrupted a natural forest structure. Um, and after we cut everything, we really didn't manage it. It grew back. Um, we, we did do some protective action, some protective legislation like the National Environmental Protection Act, um, which was very, very important, but it created a lack of management. So these forests grew back in an unnatural structure too close together with advantageous species like fir taking over in places that where we might have had indigenous pine, like where I live. And, um, and so we really screwed up these ecosystems. And we then got very, very good at suppressing fire. So a lot of people, including funders, come into the fire problem and we just want to get better at putting fires out. Um, that's actually exacerbating the problem, of course, because these ecosystems that are fire adapted need fire, like I said, to regenerate, to cull themselves down so that you have the right number of trees per acre. And you know, the different ages, different species. So it it creates a heterogeneous structure um, that is spread out and clean, basically. And in suppressing fire, we've created a mess. So we've got, you know, in, in Lake Tahoe, where I live, we've got about twice as many trees as we should have. It's hard to imagine that. Um, and those trees are sucking up a lot of water. There's too many straws in the cup, so they are becoming unresilient. They have not had fire for a very long time, so they've lost that ability to cycle nutrients and carbon and um, and regenerate. And so they're very sick, and they're dying of tree mortality, and we've got way too many fir trees. And so when a fire strikes, because there's so much hazardous fuel, it ladders up to the canopy now instead of staying on the ground and becoming a regenerative force. And the forest explodes. And then we have more extreme winds from climate change, drier temperatures. So these, these forests are also tinder dry and they're fighting for resources. And so we we have this, this high severity fire all over the West now. So um, we are very focused from a carbon perspective on active management and accelerating land management and monitoring and reporting on that land management so that we can... Um, actually secure that carbon. And with that carbon, the overall forest function, we don't care just about carbon. We want water, you know, we want evo-transpiration happening naturally. We want biodiversity. Um, we want those recreation places. As places. So we want, um, we, we, we are focused on overall forest function and, uh, and, and managing it to fruition. Um, we will launch a set of tools for carbon management, so forest carbon project development. Um, and we're doing some pilots this year with a bunch of nonprofit partners to to bring those to fruition. What's different about Vibrant Planet's perspective on carbon is this active support for management to secure carbon, water, biodiversity, and recreation, all of the benefits that come out of 
a functioning forest. So the differences are the multi-benefit perspective and the restoration of ecosystems that exist. A lot of other carbon companies are are really focused on commercial tree farms and extending rotations and other strategies, some of which are great, some of which I think the market is questioning. And I think there's been a sort of natural market adjustment around some of the strategies and what quality means in in carbon offsets. And in some places in the tropics, where we have companies working in stable government, stable forests, that that is great. And, and protective strategies are fantastic. Um, we're just focused on the fire-prone systems that need active management. Mm, makes, makes sense. And if you could go back in time two years ago to when you were starting the company, what would you tell yourself? Ooh, good question. I would probably tell myself to find an easier problem to start with. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. So in terms of the MVP or the the whole company, like the premise of the company? The MVP. We could have started with a product, I believe, that used lower resolution data to monitor and report on forests um, and help with prioritization of budgets without the very hefty, expensive science and engineering it took to develop that three-dimensional, one-meter view of forests. That is absolutely crucial to helping with management and the local decision where you're deciding what tree to cut, where you can safely do prescribed burns. That type of resolution is crucial to solve the problem. But we could have started, I think, with a slightly easier problem that is also needed, which we're tackling now. Can you speak to your experience as a white woman leading a climate tech company in an industry that is majority white and majority male? Yes, it's very interesting to be at the intersection of uh, forest management and technology as a female leader. One of the biggest frustrations I have is the lack of diversity in the space from a racial perspective. So the Forest Service has actually done an incredible job in developing a diverse team. In fact, the chief of the Forest Service is an African-American man. The head of the USDA is an African-American man. Um, And there are a lot of amazing women in the Forest Service. So they're actually an exemplary organization in terms of fostering diversity. Um, But more broadly in the space, it is a very white male space. And I do feel as a woman bringing more of a nurturing kind of love versus fear perspective to a very scary, big catastrophic problem has been sort of a competitive edge for us from both a recruiting perspective and even talking to customers, um, disarming sort of a a very male-driven space I think has been a really positive thing. And we have a lot of women on our team. We're about half women. Um, what's frustrating is finding more racial diversity in the in the space. And we really hope as a company that we can play a role in bringing up a new generation of scientists and technologists and marketing people working on this topic. One of our big initiatives is bringing tribal perspectives, so traditional ecological knowledge into the technology and also how the company approaches go-to-market strategies and how it serves customers and how we 
make a really big difference with frontline communities and in supporting tribes. We have a lot to learn from tribes on how to manage manage land. Um, Removing tribes from their ancestral lands is one of the big mistakes we made a hundred years ago. And so bringing some of the traditional ecological knowledge back into how we're managing land is is absolutely crucial for a vibrant planet. So trying to find that path and bring up a new generation of even just tribal leaders um, is is one of our big goals this year. Very well said. I know you are a single mom raising a teenage daughter. What is it like being a parent, CEO, co-founder all at the same time? Very intense. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, it's uh it is a constant juggle. And uh I feel lucky having worked for people like Keith Yamashita at the consulting firm I me- uh, mentioned. He and others in my life were able to grow my capacity and efficiency in a really interesting way, and so I'm very grateful to them for that. And uh a lot of it is, you know, we have a value at Vibrant Planet to hire people better than ourselves. So bringing in a really amazing team of badasses uh, that can take on a lot of the weight is extremely helpful. But but it is it is intense, and there are moments when my teenage daughter needs me, and I need to drop everything for her. And uh, the 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 one thing I've got going for me is an incredible team that can pick up pick up the ball um, when when that happens. So it is not easy though. We're going to close with our high voltage round. These are quick questions with quick answers, quick meaning like two or three word answers. Um, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? An eagle. I've always wanted to fly, especially on a windy day when I watch them kind of vault up on winds and that bird's eye view, of just being able to see everything as far as you can possibly see sounds amazing. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I think I would be a farmer rancher Ooh. and mushroom grower. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My daughter. Hmm. She is What's my passion and very much my drive. Her name is Emerson, named after Ralph Waldo. Oh, wow. Love that. And um, yeah, she's uh, she's inspirational. She's I swear she's a thousand years old in a 14-year-old body, very, very wise and Mm. grounded and um, very much my inspiration for what I'm doing. Mm. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? Letting go and delegation. Mm. That's a good one. Parenthood taught me that too. When are you your best self? I am my best self when I am out recreating, skinning up a ski hill with my dog, skiing with my daughter, hiking or biking with my daughter. Um, I think my best when I'm out recreating, I always have huge ahas and I'm always happiest and most full. What is your worst trait? I'm a bit of a control freak. (laughs) Most CEOs are, (laughs) self-included. Uh, If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Probably my daughter again. (laughs) And if she was standing in front of you right now, what would you say to her? Everything I'm doing and even sacrificing time with you is for you and your generation and all the children of all the other animals on earth and plants. 
really, really beautiful. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... Lack of focus or lack of funding. If you really knew me, you would know... That I am not a morning person. (laughs) I'm a night owl. (laughs) Success is... Affecting a massive difference in the problem we're trying to solve where enough land is restored that we have successfully secured sort of a sustainable carbon-carrying capacity, healthy watersheds, and we've enriched biodiversity. I'm most proud of (laughs) my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) I hope she does listen to this. She's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Oh, wow. Last question to build a successful startup, what it takes is? I think leading with vision and love. I think that at this point in time, so much is fear-driven. We often lead from fear. And I think at this point in time, I think it's why we kind of hear about the feminine rising and so many women leaders sort of coming up, I think that we sort of inherently lead with more empathy and more compassion and more love, and we have to make more decisions from that place. Such a beautiful way to close, and I couldn't agree more. And it's one of the many reasons I'm so grateful that you are who you are and doing what you're doing in the world at Vibrant Planet, and just really grateful for more people to hear your story. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Allison Wolf is the CEO and co-founder of Vibrant Planet. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I'd also like to thank What It Takes listener Kyle Cherick, hi Kyle, who said Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures are accelerating the future of climate tech. And this pod highlights some of the best stories of entrepreneurs, investors, and change makers in the space. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures with support from Postscript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading global corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every single one, and we read some of them on the show. If you have a friend or colleague who you think might like this episode, please send them the link. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>